everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 252. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host as always. That's Dr. Liza Dunn, physician, toxicologist, really sharp lady. I really enjoy these conversations, Liza. It's great to see you. How are you? It was terrific. Today's Costco day, so I'm going to go buy like a whole drum of grapefruit juice for no reason. Except and it tastes good. You're going to load up on gasoline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm just like I'm a doomsday planner, so I'm gonna go buy all this stuff, you know, like a thousand pounds of cashews, just things That's you really exactly don't right. need. That... Yeah, I'm not gonna <laughs> buy either of those things, but you know, it's it is. It's well, when you're wandering through there, you pick up all sorts of stuff that you don't expect to pick up on the way. That's that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's the dad life. <laughs> I I love it. I love it out here in the suburbs. Everyone hates on it. I don't care. It's awesome. All right. Let's get into uh, our stories today. We've got three as always. So first up, can cannabis make your workout more productive? Next, whitewash how four journals and their academic enablers are corrupting reporting on science, chemicals, and crop biotechnology. And finally, Bill Gates and bug eating. Conspiracy theory claims billionaire wants to replace cattle with insect protein. What's the truth? Okay, let's start here up top, Liza. We are talking about <laughs> great topics. <laughs> 2024. I love you, 2024. Apparently, um, people are trying to figure out what marijuana does to your workout. And this was actually a pretty pretty interesting study. So this is by uh, Lisa Marshall, uh, Nicholas Gada, and it's uh, CU Boulder today. <laughs> Surprise, this study was conducted in <laughs> Boulder, Colorado. Okay. Anyways, so this is a study. It's uh, 42 runners in the, the Boulder, Colorado area. They're all uh, recreational marijuana users. So it's it's pretty interesting design. So they took these people. They did sort of like a baseline workout session to figure out how fit they are, get all kinds of measurements and survey data. And then they assigned them to go to a marijuana dispensary, and they got to pick out a strain of CBD or THC. And I'm drug stupid, Liza, so you can fill, fill everyone in here. But THC is... The, the that's right. That gets you that's right. in marijuana. And C I guess CBD has some of not those same properties. So much, but yeah. Right. So anyways, the idea was let's get people to use whichever of these they prefer and find out what it is that might be having um, this benefit or lack thereof. So they go, they run for 30 minutes on a treadmill. And as they're doing this, they're periodically answering questions. How motivated do they feel? How much pain are they experiencing? Um, does the workout seem easier? Does it seem harder? Et cetera, et cetera, these kind of questions. Um, and of course, the, sp the spoiler here is that there was no benefit to the workout. They didn't get any more lifts in, or I guess it's running in this case, right? It wasn't a better workout. A lot of people reported feeling better. Um, some of them reported feeling less pain from, from running, doing that kind of chronic cardio. Um, but interestingly, they all ran a few seconds slower. Surprise, surprise. So, <laughs> right, right. And it, it's just so funny. And I mean, there's so many stupid pot jokes here. But I, the, the motivation seems to be for this. Um, we need Americans to exercise more. We need the, to motivate them to get into the gym or whatever on the running track, whatever. And they're, they're thinking that maybe this is one way. <laughs> This is one way to do it, right? Is if people are just sitting on the couch, if you tell them to get high first, you know, maybe they will, uh, maybe they'll uh, they'll use that and go, okay, well, if I can get stoned, then I'll go do some uh, some deadlifts. 
Um, one interesting thing, and I'll stop talking after this, was that a lot of people reported a slight reduction in, in pain. And there's been some recent research that suggests that it, your um, cannabinoid receptors naturally um, sort of regulate your pain. It used to be endorphins that, that, that experts thought were responsible for that, that runner's high that people get. So they're thinking maybe that's the same mechanism here. Is that you smoke pot and maybe that has some sort of a you know um, a pain mitigation effect, something like that. But what? So did, I what thought it was a kind of hilarious study, and I think that there are a lot of hilarious marijuana studies <laughs> out there. Um, actually, my favorite marijuana story study uh, involved um, I want to say Danish military or Dutch military recruits who were. Um, they wanted to assess whether what their reflex time was when they were driving. So they they did it. They had an arm where there was they were sober and not high. They had an arm where they drank screwdrivers, so vodka and <laughs> orange juice, and then another arm where they ate pot brownies, and then did a simulated driving oh, test. No. So they weren't they were not released out to the streets, <laughs> but they did a simulated driving test, and. Um, the, they were significantly slowed down in the marijuana arm, um, so much so that one, one fellow went through 10 lights, red lights, very, very slowly, <laughs> but went through all of them. <laughs> so, so I would not, I, I don't think that marijuana and nothing in this article makes me think that marijuana or any of its components are going to actually improve your exercise performance, especially if you're smoking it. <laughs> because there is there is so much more than THC and CBD in marijuana joint smoke. So, uh, so I, I thought the article was funny because they were the, the concern is that everybody becomes a couch potato and people are sedentary anyway. Um, that that right. with the legalization of marijuana, this might be worse. Um, I don't know that um, that it's going to really change that. It, and then in terms of Marijuana is used as an appetite um, stimulant, right? And that's one of the reasons people get the munchies. And that's one of the reasons medical marijuana has been used in patients who have cancer and have ca cancer cachexia, you know, get very, like have a very wasted look because they're not eating enough. So it's supposed to be an uh, appetite increaser. So I think you're not necessarily going to improve somebody's weight uh, by re recommending that people use marijuana. Uh, prior to prior to uh, exercise, so um, yeah, I think that the study didn't show much. Um, I think that the pain claim um, is tenuous at best in this. If I, if I remember correctly, what it, there was not a it was not statistically significant, but there were people who said that per, uh, uh, subjectively they felt that they, their pain right. was reduced. Right. Um, but last but not least, uh, I, th I think that there's a, there's not not good evidence that this is uh, going to improve your exercise or your exercise tolerance. If anything, smoking marijuana over time is going to make your exercise tolerance worse because you're going to get pulmonary issues from inhaling tar and you know all of the carbon monoxide and all of the combustion um, things and chemicals that you inhale when you're inhaling marijuana couple of things that stuck out just in the, the design of the study is that um, they couldn't administer or whatever you call it. They couldn't allow them to, to use the drug on campus where the study was conducted. They had to 
They had to get high at home, and then the researchers had to send a canavan, they called it, <laughs> to to pick these people up because it's against federal law, which is just this That's right. I, so adorable, right? Is that there's a federal law against distributing marijuana on college campuses, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> That is working, guys. Keep it up. <laughs> That's working so well. And then yeah. the, the, the way they, they toss the dice, they toss, they toss dice to p- choose which which particular product that they were going to use. And and so that's, so I don't know that you can even compare the products when they went and <laughs> when they went and made yeah. their selections. So it's a pretty I, hilarious study. I also wonder because like in a clinical trial, if it's a vaccine or a drug, if people are getting the active ingredient if they're in um they're if they're in i forget the word they're in the arm of the trial that's actually testing the drug yeah not the control group the they're test getting group. the yeah. test group right it's, it's a it's been a long week they they get the same amount it's the exact same active ingredient on purpose yep. and then in the control group it's nothing whatever yep. sugar pill or whatever it is but here I don't I don't maybe maybe they did I don't I don't know how you control for like are they getting the same amount of THC is it yeah and, and I mean? that's the thing it's you look at THC or you or sorry you look at the uh, cannabis now that's coming out of dispensaries and and things like that you, you don't know if there what other adulterants are in there and they're not always adulterants but you know some supplements they what stores have things that they add so for example um if you take a supplement that claims to have pain relief properties mm-hmm. often you can find active ingredients like tylenol or ibuprofen or something like that you know also that it's not that it's not disclosed on the label so that's one of the things about these kind of supplementing studies is you actually don't know 100 percent what you're getting which is you get you probably are a little bit better off in terms of understanding what's in there than what you're getting on the street because on the street you can get some pretty bad adulterants in fact in Florida last year, uh, but I think it was Florida, a bunch of folks wound up with head bleeds after having um, contamination, marijuana contaminated with uh, rat poison, bromodialone, which is a blood thinner. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Well, there you go. Uh, if you enjoy smoking weed and working out, then good for you. I am good <laughs> for eating salami by the fistful and watching YouTube videos when I smoke weed. Which is why I don't do it. It just doesn't <laughs> doesn't agree with me. So if you can run on a treadmill after after taking a few drags off a more power to you. Yeah, yeah, not not, not my party. But there you go. Not I mean, me there's, yeah, just take comfort in the fact that there are researchers wasting your money on these kind of silly studies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Speaking of wasted money and silly studies, let's talk about this next story. This is how. Four obstructionist journals and their academic enablers are corrupting reporting on the science of chemicals and crop biotechnology. This is by uh, GLP publisher John Antine and Andrew Porterfield, whose work we've discussed before. Great science writer. Really love Andrew's stuff. Um, They're talking here about three academic journals and then one news outlet um, that are the source of, I want to say, most of the nonsense that you read online about crop biotechnology and about pesticides. Most of it stems from this little cabal of people publishing in the same journal. So here's, this is the summary that John and Andrew put on the story. And I just want to read it directly because it Mm -hmm. sums it up. So they say, this is a story about how a small dogged group of environmental scientists and professors have perfected the art of manipulating journalists 
into misreporting the sustainable benefits of agriculture biotechnology. So they go on and they say there was a study published in uh, 2022 by Joan Conroe and Mark Linus, uh, who are with the Alliance for Science, which is Mm -hmm. a pro-science, I guess you could call them an activist group, whatever. They're at Cornell University and they train uh, journalists that that live in Africa or from Africa to report accurately on these topics. They work with researchers. Um, they try to get the public educated. So if there's a, if they're trying to get a crop approved in a certain African country, they go in and actually try to shift the narrative. So people understand the science and they're not bamboozled by Greenpeace or whomever. And interestingly, Mark Linus was with Greenpeace for years and he's, yeah. he's a, a conversion story of sorts. And this is why he pisses off all the activist groups so much is because he came from that camp and he goes, you know, I fo- was following the science on climate change and I just listened to what the experts told me and I wasn't doing that on agriculture. So now I do that on agriculture too. And it's That's just, exactly right. I think yeah. he was doing research for a book or something like that yeah. and realized that when he was reading the activist stuff, he was like, I'm, I'm not finding the literature to back this up. And the more he looked into it, the more he was like, oh, well, maybe I was wrong. Right. Yeah, there's a talk he gave at Oxford or something in 2013 mm-hmm. or so. It's on YouTube. He, he tells this whole story. It's really fascinating. But in any case, um, he did this, story, or this study with John, uh, Joan Conroe and then a data scientist they were working with in 2022. And they're trying to figure out um, how much of the media that people consume on certain science topics is incorrect or is deceptive in some way. And they found that for uh, agriculture and for biotechnologies uh, specifically, the media reports nonsense about 9% of the time. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about, when compared to like vaccines and climate change and some mm-hmm. other science topics, it's below 3%. So so reporters tend to be better on those topics. They wanna make sure they get the facts at least somewhat correct. Uh, but on biotechnology and pesticides, they seem to have less interest. And so what it comes down to is you end up with false balance, <clears throat> excuse me, in these news stories where uh, you know, CBS, they'll quote someone like Liza, for example, and then they'll go to, you know, Jim so-and-so from Greenpeace. And then these two perspectives or, are presented as, as you know, these are equal sides in the debate, which, as, as we've talked about a lot, is not the case. Or as the Boston Globe interviewed me and then uh, for a, a topic and then interviewed Carrie Gillum as, as, the, <laughs> as the opposing person. Um, to, for balance, even though she accepts um, anti-vaccine money, <laughs> and and uh, she is not involved with public health, um, they asked her. This was a health question that they were asking her about, yeah. and they didn't ask me about. Yeah, not not only does she have no experience or credentials, she's also a serial liar, and uh, it's it's absurd. So yeah, big fan of Carrie's. Come on the show, Carrie. <laughs> Would love the love the chat. Let's have a let's have a journalist on journalist discussion. And see where that goes. Uh, anyway, anyway, sorry, I'm getting uh, getting off topic and feisty. That's so, right. <laughs> so, so, so you end up with reporting on these topics where there's a lot of false balance, and what what really happens, John and Andrew point out, is that you have these three journals, and we'll, we can talk specifically about them. There's three academic journals that are predatory journals, meaning they're pay for play. So you can go to them, you pay them fifteen hundred bucks or five thousand bucks, whatever they want, and they will almost always publish your article with very little peer review. So if you're an activist group and you want to make up a scare story about glyphosate or some other pesticide, uh, you get your stuff published in these journals, then you get an activist group to put out a press release, and then 
the incompetents at CBS and CNN call you up and they go, tell us about your study. And then right here, here we are, right? Now we have fodder for our podcast because we have to talk about, <laughs> talk about you know, myths. Yes. right. Pesticides cause autism or blah, blah, blah. Or your kids are going to be born naked and illiterate or wh- whatever, right? There's, <laughs> there's always, there's always something. So that's, that's the gist of the story. And John and Andrew go through these journals and they talk about the things they get wrong. Of course, endocrine disruption is one of their favorite topics to bring up. Whatever the chemical is, it probably has something to do with endocrine disruption. <laughs> it's just, this is the go-to. Uh, and then they end with a challenge, which is fascinating. And they say, next time you read an, a story online and it's talking about chemicals disrupt your, uh, your hormones or they cause cancer or they cause autism, look at the author of the story, look at the news outlet, and then look at the journal article that they're writing about. The chances are pretty good. It's, it's, it's from exactly, one of those. Yeah. So I'll stop. Uh, go ahead, Liza. What would you make of this? Yeah, it's really it's really shows you what kind of impact predatory uh, publishing has on people because people can um, really use they are unscrupulous. They really use these articles to that they write that are not peer reviewed to support their uh, position that's unscientific, and they actually go and kind of seek out the press to really do kind of press conferences to get this going, and and. My big problem with this particular movement is they like to tag companies and say that companies are behaving um, nefariously, Um, and that's just not the case, one, and they use these to stir up public sentiment, and what that is leading to for agriculture, well, let's just put it, let's back up a little bit, so Johnson & Johnson got sued for a science-free claim that baby powder causes cancer, right? And they have had multi-billion dollar losses. They, they've, so they've taken baby powder off the market um, in the United States, and um, they spun off their consumer health division um, because of th- this litigation. And uh, it's science-free litigation, once again. It's one thing when baby powder goes off the market, um, it's an entirely different thing when you're talking about the most fundamentally important uh, products that make food security possible. When you're making health claims that are not true about them and you scare the population and then you wind up it, 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 that having taxpayer dollars going to reevaluations over and over and over again for for decades to, to reestablish the safety profile and, and make sure that none of these claims are true. Um, and then you still have public pressure to ban these products uh, because of the fear that they've engendered. It's, it's one thing if it's a, you know, just a, you know, a consumer use thing, but when it's a, something is fundamentally important to food security um, and, and nutrition uh, and public health, because you can get you can get infectious diseases and things like that from not being, you know, insect-borne illness from not using pesticides, right? So the the scope of this is much bigger, and the impact of this is much bigger. And I think it, people need to start really thinking critically about these claims. And this is why you're seeing all these farmer protests in the EU, because there are there's there people are trying to push bad policy based on the information that's coming from these journals. 
And it's a lot of it's a lot of the people who are sort of thinking about making these policies, I think, are actually well intended because they're wanting to protect the environment and they want to protect public health. So they're but that when they use these things, you actually really, really impact negatively food security globally. And all you have to do is look at Sri Lanka and it's 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 a uh, cautionary tale, and I think that uh, that's why you're seeing so much commotion um, in the EU uh, with farmers because of poor policy making, because of things like this. I uh, I sometimes don't know what to say about these topics because the level of corruption that goes on here, that's allowed to go on, uh, is is kind of stunning, and. Um, John and John and Andrew, they point to a journal called Environmental Health Perspectives, which I have been uh, very vocal in criticizing in the past because this is a journal um, that's put out by the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences, which is a federal agency, and they fund all sorts of research in toxicology and in related fields. Um, and under a director named Linda Birnbaum, she was there for uh, 10 years or so, 2009 to 2019, that, that time frame. And during her tenure there, she funneled millions and millions of dollars to researchers that she had relationships with who all had the same sort of anti-chemical perspective. So all kinds of dumb studies into BPA, which we talked about right. last week, a couple weeks ago, studies into pesticides. And if you look at a lot of this research or a lot of the commentary that's related to it, Linda Birnbaum's name shows up a lot of the time. So I have been told uh, by, by some scientists that this journal is still reputable, that people in toxicology see, see value in, in reading the stuff that's there. Um, so just to, to measure my criticism a little bit, there is some good and some bad. But nevertheless, the point here is that millions and millions of dollars of your money. It just goes into this black hole <laughs> of research yeah. that produces no good. It helps lawyers um, file lawsuits. And it's really problematic. It's really problematic for public health. And it, it makes people distrust um, regulatory agencies. It makes people distrust scientists. Um, and once again, the, the things that they're, they're focusing on um, – you know, are, are undermine the really good science that goes behind all of this stuff. And I, I think it's very unfortunate. Um, you know, everybody's upset with big pharma because of vaccines, because of similar kinds of claims, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that Linda Birnbaum's done anything on vaccines, but that, that it's a similar ta tactic that people yeah. have used to, to gin up anti-vaccine sentiment. Um, and it's, and it's targeted at, at, pharmaceutical companies. Um, and so I think it's just uh, built, a, we're, we, we need medicines, we need agriculture, we're as a population aging, we, we need to be able to rely on a steady supply of high quality, uh, very well scientific, or very scientifically uh, well researched uh, medications and, and, um, and food <laughs> so yeah this directly undermines that and it, it, it's it's really really unfortunate yep yeah it's preposterous and another funny thing that just occurred to me is that you have like niehs will fund research and then the activist groups will use that research to to file petitions with the fda or the epa to say you should ban this chemical because uh, yep. it's bad based on this 
this silly study. Um, so then the government has to spend more money refuting the research that it funded in the first place. That it funded in the first place. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, so it's a vicious it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. It's such a it's such a I don't know the the whole system is is juiced up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, so there you go. Just uh, re- read this article um, and uh, be skeptical as always. You know, look at the journals, look at the quality of them. It takes a little bit of time, but uh, you'll be better off in the long run. Yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, final story of the day: Bill Gates and bug eating conspiracy theory claims billionaire wants to replace cattle industry with insect protein. What's the truth? <laughs> Where to start okay. with this one? <laughs> okay, okay. This is by uh, Jessica Scott Reed, writing for Sentient Magazine which um, I'm not very familiar with. It seems to be sort of like a a vegan-leaning, animal rights-themed kind of a publication. Um, So she's here talking about, and again, we've all heard this, there's lots of concern about people being forced to eat bugs or they're going to ban meat or, you know, you you can take my burger from my cold dead hands, right? It's a real (laughs) passionate argument that happens online especially. So... As, as the title alludes to, Reed says, you know, there's this widespread concern that billionaires are going to mandate everyone eat bugs. Um, and she, <laughs> sorry, summary. She says, she says opposition to eating insects has uh, colonialist roots. Uh, during colonization and industrialization, you had Western countries, they would go into poor countries and they would sort of force their cuisine and their culture on them. And then they would denigrate bug eating because it, you know, it was it was gross in quotes. So that's that's where the opposition really comes from. She wants you to know is that it's, it's white people that don't like bugs, and then yeah. Now she concedes, interestingly enough, um, that yeah, the United Nations is telling everyone that uh, we need to eat insect protein, and yes, the media is telling you we need to eat <laughs> insect protein, and yes, celebrities are telling you that we need to eat insect protein, and yes, billionaires are spending money on all of these pro insect campaigns. Um, and yes, there are governments in Europe and around the world trying to restrict animal agriculture. But, 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 there's no conspiracy here. This is just about making food more sustainable. That's all it's about. So go back to the fever swamps with your crazy right-wing dreams. It's not happening. <laughs> um, and you can read this article. I'm being a little, a little uh, But that's sarcastic. pretty much what the article says. Yeah. So, so for example, she says here, she says, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we had a fertile ground for the proliferation of conspiracy theories. Um, she says it, it, it sort of sprung out of uh, distrust and authority. We had political partisanship, online echo chambers, and misinformation. That sentence is just a code word for people I disagree with say things that are bad. Right? That's right. She, she doesn't care about partisanship. She cares about, right? My opponents are real partisans, and that's the problem with our political system. That's, right. <laughs> that's, that's the point there. And, and again... She makes this clear. She re- she references a bunch of uh, conservative political commentators. I'm not terribly familiar with them, like Candace Owens, right? And Tucker Carlson, everyone knows. I don't really follow these people, but she sort of anchors the opposition to eating insects in... Yes, in right, that, the, that yeah. milieu, right? Right, right. It's these these strange fringe people, like... Uh, never mind. Anyways, um, but she ends on an interesting note, which is that um, insects are intelligent and uh, I, I guess this implies that we really shouldn't be eating them. So she talks about... <laughs> yeah, me either. She, yeah, she talks about bees, for example. She cites Scientific American. Um, I'd rather read a tabloid than Scientific American. But, they're, uh, you know, they point out that with bees, they can count. They can grasp concepts of sameness and difference. They can learn complex tasks by observing others. 
and they know they their nap own... in flowers. Right. They, They're they... bumblebees that nap in flowers. <laughs> <laughs> they know their individual body dimensions, which is a capacity associated with consciousness in humans. And then she finally concludes and says, insects will probably never be a major food source. It's just that bugs are easy to demonize. So you have culture warriors that like to mock the elite in quotes. Um, so this, yeah, it's just a right wing fever dream. So I, I don't, I don't really know what to make of all this. I mean, yes, all the examples you think of are actually happening, but it doesn't mean what you think and you're crazy and uh but you can't eat bugs because they're smart and there you go so so, so what's the solution i don't i don't know <laughs> there's, a, there's a so there's a there's a deficit in pro, pro, protein consumption as is and um what animal agriculture does is it takes puts puts animals on plots of land that are usually not you can't grow fruits and vegetables or whatever and that they convert uh uh, grass into high quality protein that we can eat. And we've co-evolved that way. We started out as hunter gatherers, right? So we've co-evolved with species that way. Um, and these nutrients that come from animal ag are very, very important for brain health and, and growth and a whole variety of, you know, vitamin B12, uh, all your, which has helps with uh, immune function, all sorts of stuff. So it's, it's really, um, it's it, it's really interesting to hear um, this kind of discussion around insects, and I've heard these people all talk about the possibility of eating insects. Now, I don't think that they are all conniving to take over all the farms and um, start uh, forcing people to eat bugs, but I think it is a discussion. And I just I think it's fascinating that the same group of people who's trying to make it more palatable are, are the ones that are also saying there's an insect apocalypse right. going on. So how are you going to feed? If, if you think about, um, I saw a great graph on Twitter the other day, um, on X the other day, that was talking about how, how many different kinds of animals are eaten globally, right? And it does this huge graph. And that that's largely where most of our protein comes from. And I was thinking, how many insects would you need to eat to match that, it would be an enormous amount of insects, right? To, to match right. that protein content, and if you if you, how would you grow all that, right? Where would that all come from? If you had insect farms that were growing all that, what would you do if there was an escape? And how would you not turn that into an invasive species? And um, insects carry pathogens, like you know a fly. If you you know if you got a house fly carrying uh, manure pathogens, E. coli, on its wings or its feet or whatever it landed, landed on. You've got an infectious disease risk. Shigella, you, you know, is a, nobody wants bloody diarrhea, right? So, you know, how do you control for that? How do you control their, make their, sure that their microbiome is not affecting your microbiome, right? Um, so I, there's that. And then there's cross-reactivity between shellfish allergy and um, insect consumption. Uh, so I mean, they've got all this, the things that people are worried about in the food supply anyway. And I, I think that it's, you know, once again, it's the same people who are saying there's insect ap apocalypse, but go ahead and eat insects uh, and we can't eat meat. So I can see where people start getting kind of concerned about the um, wisdom of uh, these decisions. 
Yeah, that's the thing that really bugs me about this story. And I think it illustrates um, why the media industry is imploding, mm-hmm. right? The, the mm-hmm. Los Angeles Times just laid off a bunch of people. Sports Illustrated yep. folded entirely. Folded. Uh, BuzzFeed gave up its entire news operation. Yep. Ma- I mean, massive layoffs in the in the media industry. And I think this story, I mean, Sentient's a rel- relatively small publication, but it's this sort of smugness and ignorance and 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 condescension towards normal people. Yep. This is why most people listen to Joe Rogan or That's exactly get, right. or get their news on Twitter is because these people are so I don't know, they're so judgmental, but they're stupid. They're wrong. Like this article and let me let, I want to go through a couple examples here. So she yeah. she points out that, you know, the case for eating insects it's really based on the fact that the global population is going to explode mm-hmm. and we need to feed all these people. Blah, blah, blah. This is a study from um, the middle of 2020. Here's the BBC headline. Fertility rate, jaw-dropping global crash in children being born. So the study projects, and this is this is published in The Lancet. So this is like, right, every every progressive activist journalist quotes The Lancet because that's mm-hmm. their, right, you know. Repute, as far as the mainstream gets, this is as reputable as it gets. So they point out, that they uh, they expect these these demographers they say the the number of people on the planet is going to peak at 9.7 billion around 2064 then it's going to fall to 8.8 billion by the end of the century and then it's going to decline precipitously um, unless we institute some major changes because people are just having fewer kids people get wealthier they don't need family around as much to meet their basic needs we have better health care as we've pointed out a lot um, now that's all great. I don't want to undo any of that, of course. No, right. Yep. But we have fewer people. So the point here is that the the premise of this is that we all have to start eating larvae because you know these these cows they just they fart so much and they burp so much <laughs> and there's just so much methane. Don't you know about the methane? There's too many people and they're all eating the cows. It's not true. It's not. It's not true. Right, and it's no, not right. just like oh, the population's leveling out. No, we have a problem that in the next decades, you're going to start to feel because old yes. people need lots of health care and they need lots of assisted living, and there's yes. more of them than there are younger people being born and entering the workforce to supply all the resources they're going to need. That's right. So all the while that these people are going on and they're lecturing you about how racist you are for liking hamburgers. This is the real crisis on the horizon. So that is again, the real crisis on the horizon, and China is recognizing that. That China, in fact, has just uh, just approved using or growing their own GMOs. I think is isn't that right? That I saw that somewhere. Um, so that they're they're starting to realize that in order to maximize their productivity, they're going to have to do things that they have been traditionally resistant to, um, and. Because you need, you've got to feed all these people, and it, and you've got to make it efficient because you've got fewer people to do the work. It's a it's a very real problem. It's a very real mm-hmm. problem. Now she says nothing about that. She just sort of takes for granted no. that the mm-hmm. population is going to explode. And right, you silly rubes. That's why they want you to eat insects. It's not because they're going to force them on you. It's just there's just so many people. You know, I you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't be bothered <laughs> to do a basic Google search, and my editors didn't care to fact check my story before it went online. But I'm right. just so much smarter than you. Um, here's here's another thing. Uh, I never, I never get tired of bashing this this colonialism thing. This is just so stupid. This argument has nothing to do with racism. It has nothing to do with um, forcing Western culture on people from Africa or India or any other part of the world. Um, 
<laughs> here's just here's just one example. And I think you've talked about this before too, but the Maasai in Africa, it's a very very well-known um, community. They're primarily in uh, Kenya and northern Tanzania. Their diet consists almost entirely of milk, meat, milk. and blood. Mm-hmm. Very well documented. Yep. Um, so, so right? Not, like, not everyone eats like that, but I mean, it's not to say that, that like meat consumption is this Western thing where like, it's you not- can't have bugs anymore. The Lion King is over. Now you're going to eat <laughs> steak because we're in charge. <laughs> no, it's not, no. Don't, it doesn't no. work that way. It doesn't no, work that and way. there are whole the, the Maasai and then in the Sahel where you don't grow a lot of grass. You can't grow you can't grow you know watermelon and a lot of crops there, right? Or lots of vegetables and fruits. So you've got whole communities that really depend on livestock for their survival. So it it, it just it just is the way it is. Yeah, another thing that in this very same debate, people will point out that agricultural. Uh, CO2 emissions or greenhouse emissions are are quite high. Now, what they won't tell you is that one of the reasons for that is that most of the world, not most, but a good chunk of the world is still developing. So their economies are mostly agrarian. Mm -hmm. All of their economic output is agriculture, which means that most of their emissions are coming from breeding and raising animals and growing crops to feed the animals. Yes. Right. So in other words, there's lots of people that rely on animals for their welfare and they eat animals and they feed animals to their families. Again, mm-hmm. no discussion of this in the article. It's just sort of like, don't, don't you, us fact checkers, we figured this out. So just <laughs> trust us. Yeah, no, no, thanks. Um, a couple, just, uh, let's see a couple other things. And uh, by the way, I'm not saying, um, I'm not saying that, you know, you're the real colonialist cause you're trying to force, your ideas, like that's not the point I'm making. I'm my point is, is just shut up and find another. <laughs> that's exactly find, right. Find another drum to beat. I'm just so tired of of talking about this. I and- think that we have had such success at maximizing our agricultural output that it has helped women and children get off the land and go to school and be able to participate in society in different ways. Um, and the people who are doing agriculture now are really professionals and, and they are, they're, they love what they do. They, you know, 2% of the population feeds us. Uh, and that has liberated huge swaths of the population to go and be able to write, write articles like this, right? Right. Whereas in the global South, you've got women and children often tethered to the land in order to, you know, feed themselves. They, they, you know, there's this romanticization of subsistence farming. Um, and when those people are offered the same technologies that we have, you could really help them dev- get food security and lift themselves out of poverty. It, it, food is the foundation of civilization and if you can help people be more productive that's a good thing for globally and you can do it very if you, the more efficient you make it the less land you need the less water you need the less pesticide you need you, this you can turn this into a cycle that's virtuous and and the whole whole society comes up but there's so much suspicion around because of journals like the previous topic we were talking about or this it's it's taken as gospel truth and and propagated through the media those journals will you know be taken as gospel truth and propagated through this kind of uh outlet and i i happen to think that um the people who suffer most are poor people yeah 
Um, just to put a bow on this, because I kind of went off there for a second. Um, it's not that, and I think you alluded to this earlier, it's not that Bill Gates sits in his office and he's like, I'm going to force them all to no. eat bugs. But no. it's very clear that there is a, a push to restrict animal agriculture. Yes. As we're seeing right now in Europe, there are farmers clogging up freeways and shooting manure at Everywhere. government buildings. Okay. So there are real efforts to restrict how farmers operate. Yeah. And there's attempts yeah. to take their land away. And you know what I mean? So there are real restrictions going into place. You have people that are very powerful and very wealthy talking about how awesome it is to eat crickets. There was yep. a video a few years ago of Nicole Kidman eating mealworms, right? Duh. Why do you think Nicole Kidman's on TV eating mealworms? Is it because it's just quirky? <laughs> no, it's because they're trying to normalize eating bugs, okay? Yeah. So it may not be some deliberate Alex Jones type conspiracy no. theory, but there is a very open push away from animals and towards insects. That's true. So I think I, I think all that to say, she could have engaged with serious people instead yes. of framing this as, you know, oh, it's just those right wingers. It's like, no, like, whatever. Those people are kind of weird sometimes. But let's have the discussion where it actually exists. And I think that one of the things that I'm really seeing a lot more and more and more is if anybody who... Um, so nobody's talking to the farmers about these policies. And right. so now the farmers are out on the streets going, wait a minute, this is our livelihood and, and this is your food supply. And you need to come talk to us about what we do and why we do it before you make these policies that are going to impact the public like this. Right. Yeah. And, and so, uh, but they're being labeled as right wing, far right, you know, uh, Nazis, the, Gar the guardians got a whole bunch of, commentary on this and George what George Monbiot or something like that Mon is out Bio, there yeah yeah is out there making all these claims about these farmers the guardian it, it gets its money from the same organizations that that yeah. you know these they're, they're, these people are accusing uh, anyway so uh, <laughs> the, the guardians getting money from the same organizations that uh the first article we talked about um, referred to, yeah. you know, the, the, the same, it's, it's the same group. The same group is anti-modern agriculture. It's anti, anti the current regulatory uh, establishment and it's anti-business. And so, and they are stringing this all together um, and they, and they, paint anyone who disagrees with them with a right-wing label. And instead of being able to have a conversation anymore, people are more and more polarized. And I wish that academics and journalists would spend a little time critically thinking about these things and talking to people who might have a slightly different opinion, but may have some really good scientific basis for that opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I know I just spent the last 20 minutes utterly trashing the story, but come on and let's no, dialogue. Fine. Yeah, let's talk. <laughs> she, we'd be happy to talk to her. We're, we're happy to talk to anybody. Yeah, I, uh, no one takes us up on it, though, right? They all, no. <laughs> they all know we're shills and we're corrupt to the core, <laughs> but they don't want to talk. Anyways, anyways, if you guys want to talk to us, we're happy to chat. We're on social media. It's at Dr. Liza MD on X Twitter. I'm at Cam J English. Uh, at Genetic Literacy is Genetic Literacy Project. They put this whole show on. It's all their content that we're discussing here. So thank you very much to them for that platform. We'll be back next time. And until then, 
Have a, Have a good day. week. <laughs> Bye-bye.